Well, welcome everybody. Um, we'll um, get started in a few minutes. I'm sure there'll be a few stragglers. But uh, glad to see all you guys here. Um, something we're trying to get started every, every week here, hopefully. We'll see if we can do that. But um, at least have this class to kick things off with. Um, you have to be patient with me. A bit of a new format for me, so hope I don't stumble through it too much. Um, yeah, glad to have everybody here. My name is Brandon Adams. And I've been coming to NGC, I kind of lost track now, five or six years, something like that. So, uh, so welcome. Um, we thank Matt and, and everybody for bringing in the donuts and hope there's a few good ones in there for you. Um, out of curiosity, how many of you have ever studied, done a study of the covenants in the Bible before? All right, so we've got a couple experts. Um, so this has been a, a particularly fun topic for me to dive into over the last 10, 15 years or so. Um, and it's, it's really been a blessing because what you're doing when you look at the covenants and trying to understand how they relate and fit together is you're trying to make sense of the entire Bible <laughs> and put all the pieces together. And uh, so it, it really helps us see Jesus better, uh, helps us see Jesus as he relates to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament in the New Testament and kind of brings everything together into clearer focus. So that's the goal here is uh, at the end of 10 weeks, my hope is that you will uh, be able to see Christ more clearly as you read your Bible. And, and the goal is also to kind of give you um, some road markers as you're reading through the Bible, as you're reading any particular story, uh, any part of the Bible, you can, you can understand a little bit better how that section fits in the overall roadmap and in the overall story of the Bible. And so you can relate it a little bit better um, when you're at different sections in the Bible. Um, and so we are going to get started this week with uh, the Garden of Eden. And uh, by way of preface, um, what we're going to be learning in here has been what, what I've learned as I've studied these things in the Bible. And you may not end up agreeing, and that's fine. And I'm hoping that we'll have some great discussion about that. So it's not just going to be me up here um, blabbing for 45 minutes or whatever. Uh, a welcome interaction from you. As I'm talking through things, if something's not making sense, please please raise your hand, shout out, whatever. Um, Want to make sure I'm being clear as we go, not losing anybody. And, uh, and then maybe you've got some disagreement. Maybe at, at the end we can save those kind of questions, push back um, towards the end once we get through the material. But welcome all the interaction you have, all the thoughts that you have. And, um, and we may, uh, I may send out an email. We have like a, a, a chat group uh, on Telegram. If, if you want some more resources uh, later or some more discussion throughout the week, we can, we can chat in there as well. Um, so let's just open in prayer real quick before we get started. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this time you've given us, uh, this day of rest to come together and, and uh, set our minds upon you. We ask that uh, you would guide our study this, this week, today. Um, that uh, your spirit would be here to help us understand your word better. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, did everybody get a handout? Uh, the straggler in the back there, Spencer, did you get one? I got one. Okay. <laughs> All right. And as of, what, 6, 6.30 last night, you are a, a grandpa? Officially a grandpa, yes. All right. <laughs> All right, so the Garden of Eden. So most of this study, it's um, 
we'll see how much we get through. This will be a, a test for timing. Um, but most of this is scripture quotation, so we're going to read through a lot of scripture and then make some observations as we go and try to piece them together a little bit. A um, little bit of a roadmap where we're going today. Uh, we're going to look at the Garden of Eden as a temple, Adam's role in the garden, Adam's test in the garden, his potential rest, his fallen nature, and then his lost kingdom. So that's where we are going today. Um, does anybody want to read that first section from Genesis 2? Any volunteers? So the first three chapters here in Genesis, compared to the rest of the Bible, are pretty short. But they're obviously massively foundational to everything else that we read in Scripture. Uh, we've got to understand what's going on here in these first three chapters to properly understand uh, what Jesus is doing when he comes, uh, what's happening with Israel, what's happening everywhere else in the Bible. So there's a lot here. We're not going to be able to look at everything in those first three chapters and all of creation. There's so much there. You know, we could spend all year unpacking those, those three chapters, I'm sure, if we wanted. Um, so we're going to narrow in on, on the Garden of Eden specifically, and, and even there just looking at a, a few things. So um, one of the initial observations just from that passage was that Adam was actually created outside of the garden. God said he created him, and then he placed him in the garden. And so the garden wasn't the whole world. The garden was this special, unique place in a place called Eden. And it was uh, uniquely designated as a special place that, that God placed Adam into. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. The rest of the world was not the garden. Now, one of the first things we want to look at is, is the concept of the garden as a temple. This might be a, a new concept. Um, what, what, do you guys, what do you think of when you hear uh, the word temple as it relates to God? How would you define that? Anybody? God's dwelling place, right. So um, the idea here is the Garden of Eden was God's dwelling place. And so there, um, what happens in the Bible a lot, especially in the beginning of Genesis here, is we, we read a little bit and then there's all kinds of things that happen later in the Bible that help us actually go back and understand this. So things that happen um, with Israel and the, and the temple there might actually help us understand a little bit of what is going on in the Garden. 
Um, so the Bible ends up unpacking things a little bit later. We, we learn more about Adam in the New Testament, even, in Romans 5, what we'll, we'll look out there, um, that unpacks some of what we read here that, that's a little bit implicit. So one of the things about the, uh, the garden here is that it was actually a holy mountaintop. Um, in Ezekiel 28, we read, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Uh, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. And there's um, debate, disagreement over exactly who this refers to. Uh, it may refer to, um, there's, a, there's a king in Israel, in, um, near Israel, uh, called the king of Tyre, and most likely he's comparing, um, the prophet here is comparing him to Adam in the garden. But the main point here we want to look at is the description of the Garden of Eden. So it mentions that it was a holy mountaintop, a holy mountain of God. So that's important because throughout the rest of the Bible we see that a mountaintop is often the place where God meets man. So with, uh, with Moses, he meets Moses on Mount Sinai, right up on the top of the mountain and everybody else is down at the bottom. God's, God's presence, we talked about uh, the idea of a temple, God's presence was up on the top of Mount Sinai. Um, uh, with, uh, with Moses there. Uh, Mount Moriah is the mountain where Abraham took his son Isaac to sacrifice him. He took him up to uh, Mount Moriah. And interestingly, that's actually many, many years later where they build Solomon's temple. It was the same place, Mount Moriah. Um, that place where they build the temple has also come to be known as Mount Zion. And that's a theme we see throughout the Old Testament. Um, God's dwelling with Israel refers to Mount Zion. And then you have uh, Mount Carmel, where Elijah uh, had, the, had the showdown with the pagan prophets. Uh, who was going to consume the, the sacrifice? Um, that happened on Mount Carmel. And then you also see throughout the, uh, the Old Covenant warnings for Israel not to worship in the high places. So this is where the pagans would worship to um, sacrifice to their false gods. And so time and time again, Israel is tempted to go to these high places, which are, again, mountaintops, hills, things like that. So there's this concept of elevation and, and dwelling with God. And then uh, the New Jerusalem at the end of the Bible in Revelation is again on a mountaintop. Um, so just, just uh, one reason why we would look at um, the garden as, as the concept of a holy temple. Uh, another reason is the imagery in Israel's tabernacle and temple. Um, so when the tabernacle and temple are described, right, God inspires artists to artfully craft um, all kinds of artwork in the temple. And we see things like uh, palm trees, uh, pomegranates, fruit, uh, things that evoke the idea of a garden. Um, the menorah, the lampstand, uh, is described as a tree with branches that grow out from it and flowers on the branches. So we have this idea that temple, uh, pointing back to a garden idea, and then again, the mention of uh, precious stones. Just as gold and onyx are in the garden, so they are used to decorate the later sanctuaries and priestly garden uh, garments. And then an important concept here is that uh, the garden was protected and guarded. 
uh, in Genesis 2.15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Anybody have any ideas what work it and keep it might mean in the context of a garden? Any gardeners in here? This is pre-fall. Pre-fall. So no weeds. Okay. Probably not. So what was he doing? Probably pruning. Pruning. Shaping the trees. Okay. Making sure what the fruit was being harvested did not. Mm-hmm. So we've got two words here, work it and keep it. Any idea what the dis- uh, difference might be? Protect it. Protect it. That's a really good question. Um, there's an interesting uh, note with the Hebrew here. So the words work and keep, they show up in uh, Numbers 3 when God is giving Israel instructions regarding the tabernacle and the Levites. He says, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they m- may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. So I've color-coded the words here. All the green words in both passages are the same Hebrew, and all the orange words in Hebrew are the same. All right, all right. Um, so the, the, they shall keep guard over him. So that's the same word uh, that was used uh, to describe Adam keeping the garden. Uh, as they minister at the tabernacle, minister there is uh, the same word as work it. Uh, they shall guard, that's the same word as keep. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the temple of Israel as they minister work at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. So in the context of this temple, to work it and to keep it was to serve the holy purposes of the temple, do all the work necessary in the temple, and then actually to guard it from anyone who was unholy and not allowed to come into the temple. Uh, They were to guard it so severely that if anybody like that was to come in, they were to be put to death. Because this was the temple where God dwelt and nobody who is unholy can come into God's presence. Um, so there's, there's an interesting parallel here in, in the Hebrew and the language between um, the task that Adam was given in the garden to work it and keep it, and the task of the, Isra- the, the Levites working and guarding the temple. So in the context of Genesis and Adam, who is he protecting it from? I don't know, who do you think? That's a, that's a good question. Yeah, absolutely. So guarding the tree specifically, uh, I think we can expand that a little more broadly, guarding it from the garden from sin in general. That's the most prominent um, um, temptation to sin there. So guarding it from himself, guarding it from his offspring he may have, anybody else? Anybody else he may be protecting this from? Anything else? 
Okay, let's keep that in mind. Um, and then the, the primary is the last reason here why we would consider the garden a temple is God's presence. Right? The primary reason is uh, that God dwelt there. Leviticus 26, 11 says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And then in similar language in Genesis 3, we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So again, the idea of God walking in their midst, God is dwelling there. Quick side note. Is this font hard to read for anybody? You all okay? All right. So in sum here, we could say that the Garden of Eden was an intersection of heaven and earth. Right? It wasn't the whole earth, but a part of the earth, this garden here, there was an intersection between heaven and earth. God dwelt there. Um, there was peace, there was harmony, there was holiness, and it was something that had to be protected. So that brings us to Adam's role in the garden. Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam's creation in the image of God. Anybody have any idea what that refers to? Do you think he physically looked like God? Spirit? Yeah. Okay. All right, so distinct from the rest of creation, distinct from the animals, God breathed life into him, breathed his spirit into him. Adam had a soul. Yep, absolutely. Adam had a soul. He shared some of the attributes. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so. Um, I would say Adam's creation in the image of God refers to his righteous, so talking about shared attributes there, so um, unlike the animals, he had a moral nature, uh, his righteous, obedient reign over the earth as a sun king, a vice regent representing God on earth. So it's interesting, the, the idea of image in um, in the surrounding cultures of the time, ancient cultures, that, that conveyed um, this uh, idea of rule and dominion, and it was associated with kings. Um, Is it image as in like representative? So you can't approach God directly, the closest you can come to is the representative he has sent image? Yeah, so the same word their image is used to refer to like statues and things like that later. Um, certain idols, right? Idols. Um, are images, they're statues that represent a false god, right? It's you approach the, the false god through that um, image, that statue. And so, yeah, there is this idea of, of representative, um, that Adam would be representing God. I was just thinking, like, when, we, when the President of the United States sends an ambassador to mm -hmm. the UN, and he speaks, he speaks behalf, on behalf of the President of the United States. He's not the President of the United States, but 
he's there supposed to be doing what the president told him to do. Right. To do. Right. Is that kind of what you're meaning here with the image of Adam? Yeah. He's supposed to be doing what God sent him to do as his person in charge. Yeah. He was um, essentially made a king over the world as the head of creation. He's commanded to fill it, subdue it, have dominion over it, right? Dominion is, is a kingly term. Uh, the domain of the king is what that refers to. Um, so he was given the task as, as king of creation uh, to go and, and fill the earth with God's glory, representing God um, to creation. Uh, Ephesians 4 impacts this a little bit more. Uh, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Right, so the image and likeness of God has this moral quality to it. It has to do with our obedience um, to his commands and, and um, um, imitating him in, in our holiness and obedience. Uh, Colossians 3, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right, this idea has to do with our thoughts, like separating us from, from animal, uh, again, our moral nature. Um, Genesis 5, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So that's kind of interesting. It's, it's using the same words, image and likeness, and talking about it in terms of, of um, earthly descendants. Right? So there's, there's this idea of, of sonship with Adam being a son of God. And we actually see that in Luke when Luke goes through the genealogy leading up to Christ. He refers to Adam as the son of God. So that's what we get from, from image and likeness, is this idea of sonship, um, son of God. And as a son of God, he's, he's representing God on earth. Uh, Psalm 8 says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. Um, this is just a helpful quote here from a book. Summarizing this, he says, uh, the term the image of God in the culture and language of the ancient Near East in the 15th century BC would have communicated two main ideas, rulership and sonship. The king is the image of God because he has a relationship to the deity as the son of God and a relationship to the world as the ruler for God. So I didn't include it here, but you can, you can find lots of examples in, in ancient cultures of, of kings talking this way, representing themselves, calling themselves the, um, the son of God. Um, uh, Nimrod, actually, later in the Bible. Yeah. And Adam was created with the ability to sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the things we're going to touch on a little bit, um, if I get through this in time. <laughs> um, but that's, a, that's a definitely an important point. Absolutely. Um, so Adam was to fill the earth and subdue it, spreading the glory of God over it. So question, why did the earth need subduing? Any ideas? Because it wasn't all a garden. Okay, that's one possibility. Absolutely, so it wasn't cultivated as a garden. So one idea would be if he's subduing that uncultivated set that he would be spreading, spreading the garden, cultivating it, spreading it. Man needed a task. Man needed something to do. Yeah. The idea of subduing is kind of along the lines of dominion, um, taking power over, over um, taking over your enemies, subduing something that's a threat. Um, 
So it's, it's an interesting question, why did the earth need subduing, right? Um, and the second question is how, how does that subduing of the earth relate to the garden specifically, right? Because this, is, this isn't just uh, something to do in creation of the world, but it's, it's tied to his task in the garden. So I'm going to leave that hanging just a little bit. Adam was to function as a priest, guarding the holiness of the garden temple by keeping sin out. So we looked at that above and talked about that a little bit. So was working and guarding the garden part of subduing the earth? What do you guys think? Do you think those tasks are interrelated? Or are they totally separate from whether one another have nothing to do with each other? I don't know that the garden needed subduing. Okay. Okay, I'm kind of throwing these out as just things to, to ruminate on. Yep, go ahead. Well, it's just Adam was to fill the earth and subdue it, not necessarily the garden, like the earth. Mm -hmm. So maybe we're not talking about the garden here, we're talking about the rest of the earth. Okay. Excellent. So question, as, as Adam was to guard the garden, how is he supposed to know what to guard it from? How is he supposed to know the difference between good and evil? Any ideas? That's, yeah. You kind of, duh. <laughs> Ask God. Yeah. So this was, this was something he was supposed to grow into and learn. So Genesis 2.15 says, uh, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in some way, wouldn't that already know that there is <coughs> a right and wrong if you can not to do something? Absolutely. That, that came from where? From God. A absolutely. So they at least knew one thing they weren't supposed to do. Uh, there's an interesting passage in Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 5, talking about Christians, says, um, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So I would suggest this was, um, this helps us understand what was going on in the garden with the tree. Adam, like you said, was to grow in his understanding of good and evil, right? Um, his power of discernment was to be trained by constant practice to distinguish between the two of them. And how was he to do that? James 1 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Right, so Adam didn't know everything. Uh, God did create him with certain ideas, right? He, he created him with a sense of right and wrong, with conscience, and he did command him certain things. Um, but the things he didn't know, he was to come to God as his father, like a child, and say, what am I to do here? What am I to do in this situation? And so he would grow in wisdom and understanding and maturity. The tree represented a, um, a shortcut. 
a temptation not to come to God with those questions, but to trust in himself to determine what was right and wrong, to be autonomous and uh, decide those things without God's help. That's what the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented. It was, a, it was a temptation to try to answer these things, figure out right and wrong on his own. So this brings us to Adam's test. Somebody want to read Genesis 3 there? I will. Thank you. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the, sorry, eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the woman said, sorry, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made for themselves morning cloths. Thank you. So there's a lot in this passage. I'm not going to unpack all of it. Um, we're all pretty familiar with it, um, right? Satan came and lied. He, he twisted God's words. He deceived uh, Eve. Um, and then she presented the fruit to Adam and put it in Adam's lap. So question, in this situation, was a serpent something that Adam was to have dominion over? Okay. Was this particular serpent something that Adam should have subdued? So this starts to flesh out this idea of working and keeping and subduing the earth. There's a threat in the garden, in God's holy presence. There is um, something that is sinning, that is twisting God's words, that's lying breaking God's commandments and tempting Adam and Eve to do the same. And Adam's task there was to come over with a shovel or his foot or whatever and, you know, stomp that snake out, throw it out of the garden, uh, be gone with you. This is what God said. And if, if he was so confused, he's like, well, I don't know. He can ask God. He could have called upon God in that moment. Uh, but he didn't. Right? His wife was deceived and he took and rather than guarding and protecting her, uh, he took from the tree and he ate and he disobeyed God and brought disaster on the world and brings us into the situation we find ourselves in. Right, but this was part of his uh, having dominion and subduing. Yes?
Yes. So yes. The consequence of that, as opposed to the consequence that comes in chapter three versus you know, sixteen three. What uh, the consequence of Satan sinning versus the consequence of Adam and Eve sinning? That's a great question. So, looking back at what we've seen so far, was Satan created to be God's representative on earth, to be the king of creation? No. He wasn't. So Adam had a unique representative role for all of the world and all of creation that Satan did not have. Satan was created as an angelic being to be in God's presence, um, but he did not have the same representative role as Adam over creation. So, um, so his fall, his sin, did not have uh, the same effect on the world that Adam's fall and sin did. Is that kind of getting it at, at where you're uh, I'd say partially yeah I mean they're definitely called different things and they're different, definitely I mean when God created everything prior to man being alone he said it was good yeah presumably that would include the creation of Satan mm -hmm. as, as, a, as an angel who hadn't, hadn't yet sinned he was good at that, at that point um, That's a good question. It, it, perhaps in God's foreknowledge, oh, 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 um, you're saying created when, when Adam, uh, sorry, when Satan <laughs> sinned? Well, it's a, it's a question of when exactly Satan sinned, and we're not given a whole lot of details there. There's a lot of different theories, and what the timeline is here, you know, how long were Adam and Eve in the garden before this, this serpent came? Uh, we're not told exactly. Um, um, but yes, there's this idea of, of creation of judgment of some kind for, for Satan at some point, uh, this, this place called hell. Did you use that uh, passage you mentioned earlier that was the king of Tyre, but also uh -huh. applied to Satan, it suggests that he was perfect in the garden. Yeah. And then, as you said, sin here. I've often wondered if that was the fall of Satan. Mm -hmm. and we always ask when. Well, he was perfect when he got there. You know, was he jealous that he wasn't yeah there's a lot of a lot of speculation you know we can we can read read between the lines and stuff it's hard to be dogmatic but what we know is Satan was created good creation was created good at some point Satan became not good but he didn't represent us therefore it didn't have the same catastrophic consequences right Adam uh, on us or on creation we talk about weeds, thorns, and thistles. Um, Romans 8 talks about creation groaning. Um, Satan's fall didn't have the same effect on the, on the world until Adam fell to Satan's temptation. Well, also, Satan's not created in God's image. Correct. He's an angelic being. So he, he doesn't have, like you said, he doesn't have the representational nature. Right. Yeah. Which, that might make him a little mad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that could be, um, that, that is one theory, the, the source of Satan's pride and fall was anger that, that um, you know, this lowly man was given the role of being Lord of creation rather than these angelic king, um, angelic powers. Um, let's see here. Uh, so as a consequence of this, then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard. So that's the same word we saw above. To guard the way to the tree of life. So the tree of life is correlated or associated with eternal life. There's a connection between the two of them. So this touches on um, something you said earlier. Uh, did Adam have eternal life before he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? <laughs> so why would you say yes? Uh huh. So, the consequence of sin was death. Uh huh. So, consequence of sin was death. So, it's. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that Adam could do what? Sin. He could sin. What were you going to say? Yeah, so I would say he had access to eternal life, but not had, had not yet achieved it. Because he was still capable of sinning, and he had to prove his dependence on God to ultimately achieve eternal life. So he, he had perpetual life, yeah. right? He could keep on living if he didn't sin, but there would always be that possibility lurking around the corner that if he does sin, that's it. Well, isn't that why Jesus was human? He was Absolutely. That's a good taste for next week. Absolutely. Potentially. Yeah, and there's different interpretations and debates on the tree whether they had access before or not. It seems like maybe they did, um, maybe they didn't, but bottom line is once they sinned, they could not access that tree. Um, Out of God's mercy. So that, yeah, that's one interpretation, yeah. So they, if they had eaten from it once they had fallen, then they would live this perpetual life in fallen in a fallen nature. Um, that, that's one possibility. Um, the other idea is that this, um, this would grant him eternal life uh, forever and it's just not something he uh, could have since he sinned because uh, he, God promised that when he ate of it he would die. Right? So there's this curse that's coming. Um, 
Yeah, so Adam was able to sin, summarizing what we just said, able to sin, but also able to not sin. His state was good, but it could have been better. So it was perfect, he was without sin, but there was a, there was a, a state of being, a state of nature that could have been even better for him. Uh, consider that in heaven, our souls are made perfect and we are unable to sin. Right, so being unable to sin is better than Adam's position in the garden where he was able to sin and able not to sin, but it was you know, a possibility of, of either. So this brings us to the concept of Adam's potential rest. Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So there's this concept that's established of God's rest in the garden. God was resting in the garden. This was a place of rest for God. And um, later in the Bible, we get this unpacked a little bit. In Hebrews 4, it says, uh, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you, uh, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came um, to us, just as to them, referring to the Israelites, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, saying, Today, through David, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Um, and the passage goes on a little bit there. But the interesting point there is it links this seventh day of creation where God rests with this idea of the possibility of man entering into that rest. This was something that Adam, and now we today, there's a possibility of, of entering that rest with God. And what does that rest mean for us? Well, it means that um, we do have eternal life. We can't lose it. We won't be judged in hell. Our souls will be made perfect. We will eventually be made unable to sin. And this, this is the idea that um, this is what Adam would be working towards. Right? God gave him this task of filling the earth, subduing it, having dominion over it. And he held out this possibility of, of rest that one day Adam could rest from this work, this you know, perpetual guarding from sin uh, inside and outside, that he would one day possibly be able to rest from that and enter God's rest. So there was something that Adam was working towards, something better even than the state he was in in the garden. Um, this is the idea that, uh, the idea here is, is that there, there was going to be a time of a judgment when God would look at Adam's life and judge, have you done good? Have you done evil? What is your reward? And so we see this in the New Testament when it talks about the final judgment. 
Uh, Romans 2 says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is an important one here. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Right, so this, this describes our situation now, but also Adam's situation. Right? If he was to strive in holiness and fulfill all these uh, commands of God, he would eventually be judged and found righteous and given eternal life. Um, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So again, this was something held out for Adam. If he was a doer of the law, if he obeyed God in everything, there would be a time when he would face God at judgment, and God would say, well done. Uh, you are justified. You are righteous. Um, that judgment did not happen as soon as he sinned in the garden. It says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, God delayed that judgment. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. But this concept of, of this judgment where all men will have to stand before God, that was, that was delayed. Um, once Adam sinned, that was held out for a later date. And so it's still this, this thing that's coming. It's still this thing that's coming, this judgment. It's not just something that, that um, was going to happen after man fell. There was going to be a judgment either way. And once Adam fell, that was delayed. Um, Matthew 19 says, And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So I'll pause right there. Does that concept, is that making sense? Are there any questions there? All right. Uh, the next section is Adam's fallen nature. So what happened? Right? He didn't obey God. He wasn't declared righteous. He wasn't justified and given a perfect soul, no longer able to sin. Adam had the possibility of entering God's rest, eternal life, his soul made perfect, unable to sin, by living a perfect life of obedience to God. However, he sinned and fell short of this glory. As a result, Adam and those who later came from Adam, those who were represented by him, are fallen un and unable to not sin. So this brings us to what's sometimes referred to as the fourfold state of man. Right, so we talked about Adam in the garden. He was 
he was able to obey God and he was able to disobey God. Right? He had both possibilities. Now, all those who are fallen in Adam no longer have that possibility of obeying God perfect, <laughs> perfectly. Instead, our, our nature is fallen and we are only able to sin before God. Everything that we do is tainted with sin. Um, I'll come back up to this chart in just a minute. Let me read some of these passages below. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Romans 5, and this is an important one for, for understanding uh, the role of Adam and the representative role of Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Give me one second, sorry. So this point is really belabored over and over again. How many times did we just read? Adam brought sin. Adam brought condemnation. Adam brought death. We were made sinners. First Corinthians 15 picks up the same idea. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we are, our, our bodies are now subject to death, right? We can die, but our souls have died as well. Our souls are, are in bondage to sin, right? And uh, apart from Christ, we sin continually. We aren't able to please God. We aren't able to do anything to please Him because of our sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2 says the natural person, so the, the person who has fallen in Adam, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, Romans 3, I'll kind of 
pass over this uh, for sake of time. Uh, what then are Jews any better off? No, not all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 8, for the, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set to the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so going back to the, the previous page, there's this chart here, and you can look at it in a little more depth later, but um, it's, it's the idea of this fourfold state of man. So in the, in the garden at creation, Adam was able to sin, and he, he was also able to not sin perfectly. And that possibility. After the fall, everyone in Adam, all, of, all humanity, is not able to not sin. That's all we can do is sin. And then those who are redeemed in Christ, who are given a new heart, who are given this Holy Spirit, we're still able to sin, but now we are able to not sin. Right? We, we have breaking, uh, broken that uh, slavery to sin, that bondage to Satan, and we are able to please God once again um, by the power of his spirit. And then in heaven, we will, be, we will be made unable to sin. Our souls will be made perfect. And there's some um, helpful passages there that elaborate from um, an older confession with some language that summarizes that really well. We're kind of running short on time, so I won't get into it there, but I encourage you to, to read that a little bit. I've often heard that the, the path of man is to get back to the state of the What I'm hearing you say here is that we're achieving something greater than was even in the garden. Better than Eden. Better than the beginning. Yeah. So we're not, thankfully, thankfully we're not put back in Adam's place. We're not put back in his shoes. Because we wouldn't fare any better than he did. Right? We are taken in Christ, we are taken somewhere better um, than where Adam was in the garden. And we'll dig into that more next week. Adam will say that's good news. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then there's a couple other statements here summarizing that. Um, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They being the root and by God's appointment standing in, in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. So again, that's from a, an older confession uh, called the London Baptist Confession. Sometimes it's helpful to, to lean on um, the way people have phrased it before. And that's, I, I found that a, a helpful, concise summary. So this brings us to the last part, the concept of Adam's lost kingdom. 
right? So we talked about earlier, Adam created as the son of God, as the image of God, to be king over creation, right? That was his kingdom. He was ruler of this world. We talked about Satan possibly being jealous of that, uh, possibly being involved with his, with his fall. But what it's interesting to learn here is when Adam sinned against God by obeying Satan instead, he relinquished his dominion over the world to Satan. 2 Corinthians 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Luke 4, this is um, when, Satan, uh, when Jesus is tempted out in the wilderness. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. I don't think he was lying. I think he had authority, he had power over the kingdoms of this world, and he, he was offering those uh, that p power, that uh, authority, that standing over the kingdoms of this world to Jesus. Where did, where did he get that? Right? Where did he get that from? By deceiving Adam into worshiping him. And he becomes, in, um, uh, have, has the... Given over by God. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment, but, uh, but Adam has now relinquished that, and Satan is the one who rules this world, not, not man. Uh, because we are, uh, in Adam, we are in bondage to Satan, slaves of sin. Colossians 1, uh, 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the domain of darkness, right? That domain is kingly language, kingdom language. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In John 12, 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So in sum, God created the world. He created it very good. He created one small part of this world as a garden, a holy garden on a holy mountaintop, a place where he dwelt, where he walked with man, a place where heaven and earth intersected. And he created man and placed man in the garden to work it and keep it, which could have the idea of, of spreading the garden. In that case, it would be the idea of spreading God's presence throughout all the earth. And that's definitely one possibility. It's, um, it's an interesting th one to think about, filling the earth, uh, filling the earth with, with creation and possibly spreading that garden. Um, but he was to protect it. And uh, Satan came in, he tempted him, he deceived him, he twisted God's word, and Adam failed in his responsibility. He did not guard the garden. He did not guard and protect his wife, and he sinned. He didn't look to God and ask God for help, saying, Lord, what should I do in this situation? The serpent saying something, uh, this is what my wife thinks, what's true? He didn't ask God for help, he didn't pray and ask God for wisdom. He trusted himself and took and ate from that tree. And so now he, man, becomes, we become the arbiter of good and evil, right? That's what we see in our world today. 
Uh, every man is right in his own eyes and, and we all uh, are the source of right and wrong. We're, we don't look to God. And that's a result of, of um, the judgment for this sin is Adam's nature is corrupted and becomes um, unable to obey God perfectly anymore and sins continually. And all those who come from Adam, which is all of us, we inherit that and we are born by nature children of wrath, unable to please God. And then in Genesis 3, after all of this happens, we'll look at it next week, God gives them a promise. He, he doesn't leave them hopeless, but he gives them a promise of one seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head the way Adam was supposed to. And like you mentioned, a second Adam will come and, and lead us into that better possibility beyond the garden into that eternal rest. So we will uh, look at that next week. There's a few passages down there at the bottom you can read for next week. Uh, in preparation. But we've got uh, about 10 minutes or so. I'll leave it open to any questions, any thoughts you guys might have. Absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 the deep, deep mysteries of of God. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we have to conclude. Absolutely, God is omniscient. He is all knowing, all powerful, all everything. Um, he certainly knew and saw the end. From yes. In my mind, there's no way you can say he's Correct. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting though that he still regretted it. Yes. Yeah. We um, language like that because um, there's other there's there's passages in the Bible that talk about God changes not. He's not like man. Even ones that say he he repents not, and then you have ones that say like well he regre he regretted what he did. So. Well, not what he did, but what happened. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. So we. Yeah, it's not. Um, I, I think if you both think the truth at the same time, right. and I think about uh, Joseph sold into slavery, he says that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. So I don't think Adam is in any way uh, off the hook for the decision he made, even though God all along knew that was the decision he was going to make, and that yeah. God willed that to happen, still leaves Adam guilty. Yeah, yeah. One one thing to just kind of throw out there in lines of what you're saying. Let's let's say Adam didn't fall. Let's say he perfectly obeyed, and the, and the children he had perfectly obeyed, and they were justified. Would we ever know God's mercy? Yeah, yeah. So. Then again, too, if it was the 
temple, that the Garden of Eden is his temple, we weren't all supposed to live in the temple. Maybe that we were supposed to. He was supposed to train us and teach us to live like we were living in the Garden of Eden before, mm -hmm. before the sin Yeah, and so that's kind of one of the questions, like, we don't know exactly, like there's this possibility of maybe maybe the garden was this small thing and that's part of working it and keeping it was, was spreading it so that when they did fill the earth, the whole thing was the garden. Maybe that's a possibility or maybe it remained uh, kind of walled off and it was something they learned from and then went out into the world. And you know, there, there's a lot of possibilities. We, we can kind of read between the lines a little bit. And, you know. We know that there will be a new earth. Amen. Better than Eden. New heavens and new earth, better than Eden, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll dig into that next week for sure. So I feel like, just a quick question, I know we're at time. The yeah, story good. of redemption, I feel like I have a big check mark. I'm seeing redemption. But then the next thing is the covenants of the <laughs> And I'm still like, it is a mystery. So is this concept of like garden, roll, and rest, are you playing that out into a description of covenant? Or where does, where does this covenant of the Bible come from? Yeah, this so. Session one, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, it can be a bit of a distraction, so I just I didn't I didn't mention it. But yes, I would say everything that we just talked about, we can summarize it as a, a covenant that God made with Adam with creation. Some people refer to it as a covenant of works, right? Because this is something that Adam he had this possible reward held out to him, this eternal eternal rest held out to him if he would work, if he would obey. And that's that's a contrast that Paul talks about in, in the rest of the New Testament is and now it's not for those who work, but for those who trust in Christ, who, who will have that eternal rest. So putting all these things together, I would say that all of the, um, all of the qualities, all of the categories, all of the elements of a covenant are here. Even though it's not explicitly called a covenant in Genesis 1 through 3. Um, but that's something that actually happens a fair amount in the Bible, is we don't see language in one passage, and then much later in the Bible, use language to describe it. So in, um, in 2 Samuel 7, when, when God comes and makes a covenant with David, it's actually not called a covenant anywhere there. It's, not, it's just all these, it recounts what God says. And then later in the Psalms and other passages, um, and later I think in 2 Samuel, David refers to the covenant that God made with me. Right? So it wasn't called a covenant initially, but it was a covenant. So um, that's my contention. That's what I put forward here is that this was a covenant that was made with Adam with, and with creation. Um, Adam was a, a covenant head, a representative head of all of us um, that had this possibility of reward, and, and he fell, and this is the consequence of that broken covenant. Um, is that kind of what you're getting at? Are you going to tease out, like, the trailer for, like, we're going to look at this going forward for the next 10 weeks? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. So um, next week we're going to jump into the second Adam. Right, we're going to skip over all the other covenants and go straight to the second Adam and look at uh, the new heavens and the new earth like you mentioned and how he brings those um, whom he came to save into the new heavens and the new earth. And so we're going to have a sharp contrast between the first Adam and second Adam. Uh, so look at the new covenant, jump into there and, and eternal life through the new covenant, what that looks like. Um, and then we'll rewind and we'll go back to uh, the covenant with Noah. With Noah, absolutely. And that's going to be <coughs> some interesting parallels with what we went over today. We'll see how is it the same and how is it different. Because there, is, there are a lot of elements the same and some elements that are very different. So look at how those two relate to, to one another. Um, 
and then uh, and then we'll dive into the covenant with Abraham. Right? How does that relate to the new covenant in Christ? How does that relate to the skull-crushing seed of the woman who was promised in Genesis 3? Uh, how does that unpack and relate? And that's, that's the, the um, beginning, the birthplace of Israel. Right? So how does, how does Israel relate to the church? We'll look at the old covenant after that, coming into the promised land of Canaan. How does that relate to the church? Uh, how does the old covenant relate to the new covenant today? And then uh, we'll look at the covenant mentioned with David. Right? Uh, how does that relate to Israel and their time in Canaan? And then how does that relate to Christ? Um, and then we'll, after all those, we'll come back to the new covenant again. And we'll take another look at the new covenant in light of all these other ones we just looked at and how it fulfills all these ideas in all these other covenants, all the types and promises and all these things that uh, the other covenants talk about. And, and then um, we'll, we'll do a little bit of a recap, some Q&A and things like that. But that's kind of the big picture. Does that uh, give you an idea of where we're going? Awesome. Any other, any other questions? All right, thank you guys for being here. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Um, I may send out an email. If you're registered, I'll send out an email this week with just with some re reminders of some passages to read for, for next week. And um, yeah, let me know during the week if you have any questions, anything like that.